All right, we're going to close out what we've been doing in the New Testament tonight, and uh, I am... Um, I really haven't figured out how to give you the best cheat sheet for this, but I think I've got it structured in a way that though we are a little shorter on time than normal, I'll talk as slow as I can and make sure uh, you can take notes. And if and if and always just know this: if ever I hit something and you go, "Man, what is that?" Uh, you are always I'm more than happy for you to say, "Pastor, can I get a copy of your notes?" The answer will be yes. If you will email me, that way I can email it straight back to you. Sometimes I'll hand you the copy of notes I have in front of me, but there's only one of those. So you got to be the first person to ask or the first person the Holy Spirit tells me to say yes to, one of the two. Um, sometimes I may say I need to go, you know, if it's sermon notes, I've got examples in there that I may not want just for public consumption to, to remind me of. But uh, uh, anyways, so... Well, I mean, sorry, let me clarify what I mean by that. Examples that what I write to remind myself of what I'm giving the example of, I might not want just circulating around everywhere because it's meant as a, it may not make sense to anybody else but me, not because there's something weird in there. All right, here's where we ended last week. Uh, when you walk through the life of Paul, you've got two, two major spots we ended. When you get through the book of Acts, which unlike the Old Testament, where the bulk of the Old Testament is, is really historical narrative. You can pick up in Genesis, you can read most of Exodus, some of Numbers, a good chunk of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You can then read about half the book of Daniel. You can take some parts out of Isaiah and several of the other prophets, and you can pretty well, and, and, and then if you know the timeline of where the other books come in, you, you, can pr you span... 1500, I mean, technically you span from the beginning of creation until 400 years before the birth of Christ. When you come to the New Testament, we get these four gospels that are, uh, that are specific accounts, uh, in a way, theological biographies of the life of Christ, each one written for, to a different audience with a different purpose uh, from a certain vantage point, all in harmony with one another. And then you get to Acts, and Acts is the only real work of any kind of history that you have. And when you get to the end of the book of Acts, like we saw last week, it ends with Paul in prison in Rome under house arrest for two years, and then it just abruptly ends. And we talked about last week, from best we can tell from Scripture, Paul gets released from that imprisonment. That's the one he's talking about in the book of Philippians. And he's going to have a ministry somewhere around, around the Mediterranean world. Uh, there's some who will say that there's some who will say that when he gets out of, of Rome, he's going to come back over and minister in Asia Minor. Some will say he goes up into what would be Bosnia or Croatia or Slovenia. Some will say he makes it all the way out, as was his desire to Spain. And it's in that time that he's going to write First Timothy, Titus, and then you get to Second Timothy. And it's clear when you read through Second Timothy, we find out he's in prison again. He's in Rome. And this time, he's very certain this is it. He's not getting out. His life is going to end. And we know from church history that Paul will die sometime in the mid-60s of the first century. He will die under the reign of Emperor Nero, uh, who, you know, anything on Emperor Nero, he was the ultimate Looney Tune, but not in the positive way. He's crazy. He's the one who set fire to a portion of Rome and then proceeded to blame it on all the Christians, which allowed this uprising of persecution. And Nero will have Paul beheaded. Paul's a Roman citizen, so he is, he is afforded a, in theory, I guess, quicker, uh, less painful 
mode of death, though that would only be true, and, and not trying to be grotesque, but based on how sharp the blade was that was brought to him. But that's outside of that. What, what else takes place? Because you've still got, we haven't talked about the book of Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Technically, the gospel of John wasn't written until the late 80s, early 90s, and we haven't even hinted at Revelation. So you still have more New Testament books that are written, but after what we know the life of Paul ends. And so what, what we're going to do tonight in doing that is I'm going to kind of give you what happens in the rest of the New Testament, and where do those other books fit in? So by the time you get to the end of Acts, let me give you kind of a list of the major churches. Even though we don't see all of them appear in Acts, these are the major churches we know. Uh, you're going to have, and let me see if I've got a good map to try to point. I don't remember what's... Come back here. You're going to have major churches. Obviously, the church in Jerusalem remains a major church. You're going to have the church in Antioch, up here is going to be a major church. You're going to have the Ephesian church, which is going to be right here. Uh, you're going to have the Roman church. Obviously, we fast forward here. You're going to have, oh, nope, wrong one. You're going to have the Roman church over here. In addition to this, the other major, major, major church coming out of the first century is the church in Alexandria down here in Egypt. It's one of the main, you don't hear a lot about it in scripture, but we know from church history, the early church fathers, the generation of believers and pastors that would come after the apostles die off. The church in Alexandria is a major, if not for a period, one of uh, the most major um, uh, of the, the, the early churches. In addition, we know from history, and commonly this gets left out, but we know to the east over in what's modern-day Syria, uh, sorry, up, up here in Syria, and moving up into Georgia, Armenia, there is a rich tradition of churches that burst onto the scene in the first century. You've got down in the rest of Africa, you've got uh, in Egypt, what will turn into as time goes on, what's the modern-day Coptic church. You've got down in Ethiopia, a long-standing church tradition. Now, as time has gone on, those church traditions have altered some things doctrinally, but they can trace. I mean, the Ethiopian church can trace the lineage of the Ethiopian church all the way back to the Ethiopian eunuch who brought the gospel to Ethiopia. So understand that as the rest of the first century is going on, and you think about what Acts says at the beginning, I wrote to you in Luke all that Jesus began to do, the emphasis being now I'm writing about all that Jesus is continuing to do through uh, the Holy Spirit, who's living through and empowering us, the local church, to be as witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You're going to have all of this. By the way, in the first century, we know the gospel got all the way over into India and parts of China. So these, this is where you're watching the spread of the church. I think I put this map. Yes. Aha, I knew I had another one that was bigger. This is the Roman Empire. And, and by the... Uh, This is the Roman Empire, and by the second century, uh, you can see uh, most nearly all of this had been reached. Now, when I say reached, I mean everybody believed in those cities, but had been reached with the gospel. Now, in this, here's what's going to play out. Uh, some of, you know, there's a lot of what we call church tradition, what happened to the apostles and some of the other major names in the New Testament. Uh, some things we know for sure. Some things, this is what 
we're told, but it may be a little bit legendary or we may not fully know there's multiple accounts. It's okay, nothing's wrong. It just means the death of all those apostles wasn't recorded in Scripture, so we don't know with absolute certainty what happened uh, because it's, it's kind of like get a couple old high school football players and they're going to have five different stories about the most epic comeback that maybe didn't actually happen back 70 years prior. So Peter, what happens to Peter? Here's what we know about Peter from Scripture. We know Peter was initially down in Jerusalem, down in Jerusalem, and at some point we know, because according to Paul in the book of Galatians, at some point Peter's going to make his way up to Antioch, because that's where Paul rebukes him to his face for falling back into what was essentially racism. The gospel brings Jew and Gentile together, but I won't eat with any Gentiles. He falls into that habit. He rebukes him there. We know that from based on uh, 1 and 2 Peter, written by Peter. He writes those to churches over in this area. We know he had a ministry in this area. What's interesting is he had a ministry in the very area that the Holy Spirit told Paul, don't go into, I want you to go over here. Not saying anything by that, just telling you that's the reality. We know that he stayed in Corinth, and at some point along the way, Peter does get to Rome. And of course, that's where in the Roman Catholic Church, most will, will associate Peter. At some point, he gets to Rome. We know that he was executed, in, 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 just like Paul, under Nero by crucifixion. What we don't know is if tradition is true that he was crucified upside down, or if he was just crucified normal, uh, that we don't know. Uh, tradition also holds that when, when the persecution was ramping up, he was encouraged by believers to, to leave, which technically Jesus does say, if you're not accepted in one city, leave, shake the dust off your feet, go to the next. But tradition holds that as he was walking away, Jesus appeared to him walking back the other way into Rome. And he said, my Lord, where are you going? And, and Jesus said, to Rome to be crucified again. And it was a reminder to Peter, because if you remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells Peter, there's going to come a point where others are going to take you where you don't want to go. And it says in John, this was in reference to how Peter died. And of course, Peter looks at the apostle John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what about him? You follow me. Whether this happened or not, again, tradition is there. We know Peter was crucified in the mid-60s. James, the just, the brother of Jesus, whose letter we just finished, he would be the leader of the church in Jerusalem until his martyrdom. And tradition holds that he was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with clubs. This occurred sometime in either A.D. 62 or A.D. 69. It can't have occurred after A.D. 69 because that's when Jerusalem will be obliterated by Titus and the Roman army. Thomas, Thomas is, uh, is purported to have gone at, for sure into Syria, but as far east as India and even China. In fact, there is a branch, uh, uh, Marthoma Christians to this day in India hold Thomas as the founder of the Indian church. And we know that he was killed either. And don't ask me how it's one of these two dates. I don't, uh, Tom didn't give me enough research to give, get that kind of minutia. But I'm just telling you, either July 3rd or December 21st, AD 70, one of those two dates, AD 72, either July 3rd or December 21st, he was, die he was killed purportedly by being speared. Uh, Andrew will minister throughout Asia Minor, Greece. Uh, tradition holds that Andrew goes all the way up to U what's modern-day Ukraine and Russia. In fact, if you ever were to go to Kiev, Kiev, Andrew is the, is the patron saint of Kiev because the tradition holds that he made his way to Kiev, which is sitting on two mountaintops, and he prophesied that one day there would be a great city there. And so they're, they're all into Andrew there. Andrew will ultimately be crucified in, uh, in Patros, Greece, 
apparently because he, he led the, the wife of a, of a Roman official to the Lord, and that official got hacked off, and he had Andrew crucified. And legend holds that Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross, which is why if you ever see uh, there's certain imagery that are, that are tied to different apostles. If you ever go in there, there's a church in Rome where they've got 30 foot high out of single cuts of marble statues of each apostle. And on each statue, there are different symbols that are, that are put into there. And, and Andrew's is the symbol X because he was supposedly crucified on an X-shaped cross. Philip the apostle, not to be confused with Philip the evangelist, who is who you see in Acts chapter 8, ministering in Samaria, and then is the one who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. Philip the Apostle, different, uh, he is held to have ministered in North Africa, Carthage, Asia Minor, and to have died um, to died in, in Hierapolis, Greece. Matthew is said to have ministered in Persia, meaning modern-day Iraq and Iran. As far down as Ethiopia, some say he died of stabbing in Ethiopia. Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, is said to have ministered in India, Armenia, Ethiopia, Southern Arabia, and there's a lot of different theories out there on how he died. James, the son of Alphaeus, is said to have ministered in Syria and Egypt. Simon the Zealot is said to have ministered again in Persia and, and to die of martyrdom there in 65 AD for refusing to bow and sacrifice to their sun god. Uh, this is according to the Ethiopian uh, Christians. And again, if you want to dig in, some would say that he was actually crucified four years earlier up in Britain. One of the two, take your pick. Uh, Matthias uh, was, was burned to death in Syria. And then it leaves you with the Apostle John, who as best we know, was the only one of the apostles not martyred. But don't miss that because tradition also holds he suffered greatly. We know he suffered exile in Patmos. It also holds that he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil and boiled alive, even though he survives. Uh, what, what we know about John is at some point, John is going to end up coming up to Ephesus. And best we know, he is going to pastor the Ephesian church for a period of time. We don't know how long. It's most likely that he wrote his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from there. Very likely he wrote the gospel of John from there. He makes it back to Ephesus. We don't know exactly when the exile happens. He makes it back to Ephesus in AD 98, which is wild. It also puts him, you think about that, he would have been called by Christ about 70 years prior, which is also what helps you know when Jesus looked at John that day on the Sea of Capernaum and said, you follow me, John was probably only 13, 14, or 15 years old. That also means he was likely also anywhere from 16 to 19, or 18 years old as his Lord died on the cross, looked at him and said, you now have care of my mom, which from what we also understand historically, he would take care of Mary until Mary died and, and she would go up to Ephesus with him. This is the apostle, uh, the apostle John. Now, here's the other key things you need to know about the first century that are, that are major dates. So you got this Nero persecution in the AD 60s. At the same time, back in Israel, you have the zealot movement, which is trying to fight back and win freedom out from the Romans. This is going to finally get to be troublesome enough that Rome comes down in 70 AD under General Titus and, and flattens, to uh, just obliterates Jerusalem, rips the temple down. In fact, if you go to the Temple Mount today, you'll see all sorts of ruins that are right there from when the Roman soldiers tore it down and pushed it onto the ground. Um, in fact, if you go to Rome today, one of the arches going down in the old Roman forum is the Arch of Titus, and etched in that arch are, are 
pictures of the siege of Jerusalem and the Roman soldiers carrying objects out of the temple. It's there on there. Titus is going to destroy Jerusalem. So what this means is once you hit 70 AD, Jerusalem is not going to be the prominent city anymore. And and because of the Roman Empire still somewhat seeing Christians as just a sect of Judaism, you're going to have the movement of Jews and Christians out of Jerusalem which is why if you ever go to to Jerusalem today sometimes they'll tell like they'll take you to they'll take you inside the 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 chapel there at the garden of gethsemane and they'll say this rock this is the rock Jesus prayed on how are they going to know that there weren't any christians in the city for 400 years very possible Jesus prayed on that rock the garden's not that big and there's only so many rocks but to say that with absolute certainty or some of those things you've got to watch out for because this is a major moment. In the time between when Paul and Peter die and when you get to the end of John's life and the writing of, of Revelation, the other big thing that's going to happen is the Roman Empire is going to see Christianity not as a sect of Judaism, but as its own thing. And really, you see that by the time of Nero, because you notice Nero didn't kill the Christians and the Jews, he killed the Christians. So there is a, a changing where people now understand followers of Jesus are not just some other version of Judaism. They're followers of, they're followers of Christ. The first century is going to end with the Domitian persecution, which will last for seven years under Emperor Domitian. It is brutal, and you will also, and if you were to go further into church history, you will see. So you understand why when you do read through Revelation, there's different opinions on how to interpret Revelation, that what you have to remember when you read through it is while there's prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled in Revelation, Revelation was written to real churches who were really suffering under the Domitian persecution. And it was written at minimum to encourage them to hold fast because they were not abandoned to just suffer and die. The Lord was going to return. Now in this period, I got six minutes. In this period, uh, we've already mentioned James. James, of the, the, the letters not written by Paul, James was written back in, the, back, back in the 40s, 50s. So it's already been written. We've walked through it, you know, probably way more than you ever thought you would about James because it took us eight months to walk through it. When you come to the rest, you've got Hebrews. Now the book of Hebrews if you read it cover to cover, some will argue it's more theologically dense than the book of Romans. I love the book of Hebrews. Uh, it has a very special place in my heart because it's the first place I ever read in Scripture on my own as I began to seek the Lord and, and I watched the ways the Lord change. Here's the reality, though, if you read it cover to cover. The author never names himself. So Hebrews is the only New Testament book that we would say is anonymous, meaning we don't know exactly who wrote it. The Eastern Church believed Paul wrote it. The Western Church initially didn't, didn't know who wrote it. Some will say Apollos wrote it. Some will say Timothy wrote it. Some will say Luke wrote it. Some will say Barnabas wrote it. Here's the reality. The fact that it was accepted as Scripture was because the early church knew who wrote it, and they weren't worried about who wrote it. They knew that person was writing by the Holy Spirit. We believe it was written, and this is why I tell you that 70 AD is the, one of the biggest dates to remember outside of what's recorded in the New Testament. When you read the book of Hebrews, 
that writer clearly understands the Old Testament. He understands, and the argument is Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Jesus is greater than the Old Covenant. Jesus as high priest is greater than the high priest of the Old Covenant. Jesus is greater. So don't, and he's writing to people who are being tempted to turn back to Judaism. He's saying, don't go back because Jesus is greater. Jesus has fulfilled those things. Jesus is greater. But Interestingly absent is the fact that he doesn't ever mention the temple being destroyed because the temple being destroyed means there is no high priest, there are no more sacrifices. So we don't know exactly when Hebrews was written, but it was likely written, most likely it had to be written before AD 70 because that would have loomed large and changed a little bit of the argument that they were struggling to face and that's not there seems to be written to Jewish Christians. I personally think it wasn't just written to Jewish Christians. I think it was written to some Jewish believers who had formerly served in some area of the priesthood because of how specific it is on those things. Again, that's my opinion. Uh, Timothy is mentioned at the end. The writer clearly knows his audience well. Timothy is in Paul's Timothy is mentioned at the end. And I love the book of Hebrews. It is wonderful. Time doesn't permit me to say a whole lot. Otherwise, I'll start preaching and then... You may or may not get mad at me, don't know. All right, First and Second Peter. Peter claims to be the author. We know he's not the author, he's an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. The early church all supported that Peter, Peter wrote it. In both places, he talks about writing from Babylon. Now, as far as we know, G- Peter never went over to ancient Babylon. And by this point in the first century, Babylon is, is in ruins. Where is he likely writing from? Babylon seems to be... Um, a metaphor for where he finds himself writing from, which is Rome. He's writing from Rome, writing to believers who are facing real persecution, real challenge. He is encouraging them to stay strong as God's people. Uh, the book of First Peter um, is wonderful. So is the book of Second Peter, but it'll take you through. I mean, you've got that section in First Peter we've looked at last time we had Lord's Supper, which just describes everything we have in Christ. You've got... Um, it's, it's just beautiful. You've also got in Peter uh, hard statements like if, if judgment begins with the house of God, don't be surprised by this fiery trial that's come upon you to purify you. First Peter has charge to the, the pastors of the church to shepherd the flock. Second Peter, of course, you've got the statement, you hear me mention it often, God is not slow as some count slowness, but he wills that none should perish and everyone should come to know him, Second Peter 3.9. Uh, in Second Peter, he knows that his, his date of death is near. In addition, in Second Peter, I'll draw your attention real fast in the time we've got left to this one, one verse I want to point out to you as an encouragement. Second Peter chapter 1, uh, he says this in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus our Lord. For His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence. He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That means that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ and wherever you find yourself in terms of maturity and intimacy with Jesus Christ today in your personal relationship, you as a believer lack nothing 
that is necessary to know him deeply, intimately, and to walk with him in total abandon. There is not something, fill in the blank with whoever the, 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 the Christian is, you think, wow, that is just, man, they are the Christian. Billy Graham doesn't have something with Jesus you don't have. Corey Ten Boom doesn't have something with Jesus you don't have. Your pastor doesn't have something with Jesus you don't have. It says that if you are a believer, God has given you everything for life and godliness which means there is no excuse for us to not continue to press into Christ by His grace, allow Him to grow us and sanctify us. And there is never an excuse for us to go, well, I just, God, I just can't follow you in that command. I don't have the ability. False, you're right. You and your flesh don't have that ability, but you've been saved. Old you died, new you's raised. You're in Christ, Holy Spirit lives within you. And He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, to know life and life in the full now and godliness. In addition, you've got 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, we know that Apostle John wrote them. We likely think he, he wrote them from Ephesus. He is addressing believers, specifically in 1st John, wants readers to have fellowship with him and want them to know the joy, uh, the, the joy of Christ in full. He wants to provide a, a foundation of assurance of salvation for his readers, and he warns of false teachers. It's in 1st John that he says, test the spirits which seems to imply a couple things. Seems to imply you and I have the ability as believers and will interact with the supernatural if we're supposed to test the spirits. It also means we're supposed to test them. It means that there are, whether it's you're literally confronting a demon face to face or you're confronting people who are walking in line with false spirits, it means you and I are to test everything. It means, and you and I wouldn't have to test it if everything was the polar opposite of truth. You and I need to test it because there's a lot of stuff the enemy does that's about 90% true, but 10% false and therefore all wrong. Supposed to test the spirits. Of course, 1 John talks all about love. We're not to love the world, we're to love each other. Love is from God. Everyone who's loves has been born of God and knows God. There's, of course, the wonderful verse, in this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. We love not because we love, but he first loved us. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear, overcoming the world. First John is a wonderful book and reminds us that we are called to love and care for each other as a foundation of the Christian life. Then you've got second and third John that are very short. They're very specific. They're written to address specific instances. Uh, and there's some tough, I know they're one page in your Bible, maybe a half a page, depending on how big your Bible is. Second John's tough. Second John says, if you've got someone who comes in who's preaching false truth, you're not even over to have them over to your house to eat. That's tough truth. <laughs> That's tough truth. There's some tough things in there. And then, of course, in your, uh, what John will write uh, toward the end, you've got the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not trying to skip over Revelation, but there's so much in there that, spoiler alert, we weren't even going to try to cover it all tonight. So that's going to be secondary when we come to the end times. In addition to Revelation, you have the small little book of Jude. And I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about it tonight because you're going to find a whole, a whole lot about it on Sunday. So, because we're going to spend the next four weeks walking through the book of Jude. Jude has been one of the most neglected New Testament books historically. Yet when you study it, there may be no more power-packed, pertinent, cutting portion of Scripture to what we face as the modern church today than the 25 verses of Jude. Jude being the brother of James, 
James, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, because that's the only James that needs no other introduction other than James in the early church, which would make Jude then another half-brother of Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus had a brother named Judas, which Jude is short for Judas, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew word, Hebrew name, Judah. And so with that, you come to the end of the New Testament, the New Testament and the story. John is on Patmos. He writes Revelation. And this is what he says at the end. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy in this book. And then he says this, and he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. This is how the New Testament closes. So, uh, there you have kind of an idea. It's, it's, it's way brief of an overview, um, and we will, we, will, we will come back to it. But there you have an idea of kind of the major things that happen in the rest of the New Testament era, when these other books were written, how they connect into things, and um, uh, we will come from there. So let me just remind you, next week is spring break due to a variety of factors. We have uh, no Wednesday night Bible study next week, but we will be back in two weeks. And we're going to have some fun in two weeks because here's what's going to happen with Jude. Jude starts to mention a whole lot of really strange stuff a year and ago. I've never known that was in the Bible. What is he talking about? And there is no possible way for me to get through a sermon appropriately and give you all the background in the sermon on what those things are. So you're going to get a public service announcement that Sunday at church that says you're going to end today with a bunch of questions because I'm, I'm going to keep us focused on the main point but come Wednesday, because we're going to dive into all sorts of crazy stuff, like what does he mean when he says, God, God forever cast into darkness the angels who defied their proper abode? What does that mean? And there's all sorts of crazy wild theories out there if you start doing your digging. So come ready in two weeks. We're going to look at that. Excited to do it. Excited. Uh, we'll ask you to just be in prayer. Be in prayer as we walk through Jude. Because Jude is going to demand we get pretty specific on some of, in, in naming some of the false gospels that run around today proclaiming to be Jesus' truth. Because that's what was going on to the church he was writing to. Um, there's truly, in my mind, probably no passage of Scripture we've covered that has potential to really expose some nastiness, not knowing who wanders in on a Sunday morning. Because Jude is not... Jude... Jude um, Jude would be canceled very quickly by the world today for what he writes and how specific he is. So I just ask you to do this and join with me as you pray for Sunday, for the next several Sundays. Really pray, because the flip side is this. We looked at it this past Sunday. We've got brothers and sisters who've wandered into all sorts of false truth that's getting running out there. Um, Jude would provide a great opportunity for them to hear the truth and be corrected. Please join with me in praying for a mighty movement of God to do that. Because I know too many young believers who've been wooed away, uh, who, who likely are real believers, but there is so much. And I'll, give, I'll just give you this example and we'll close. When I was, in 2019, I had a student come to me, met in my office. They said, I've got a friend. I got several friends who are believers that support homosexuality. And they said, A, B, and C. Now, I've heard of believers, people who claim to be believers who also support homosexuality, but I had never heard the arguments that this student laid out. 
because they were arguments that attempted to take the Greek New Testament and twist it in ways to advocate that God actually designed and approves of homosexuality. I'd never seen that level of um, specificity in trying to make something sinful sound biblical. And so I just hopped on my laptop because a student came to my office and I just looked up the biblical case. Sure enough, I found a whole list. I think it was nine, nine reasons that if you don't have a little bit of training in, they'd be honestly fairly convincing. You get a little bit of training, you can go, ah, let me show you what they did. All of these are, all of these are, are logical twistings. But here, let me tell you how crazy that is. I, I was in the middle of college 10 years prior. Nobody talked like that. The argument back when I was in college, which is a short amount of time prior to this, was homosexuality is right, and if you say it's wrong according to Jesus in the Bible, well, the problem is just your Jesus and Bible are wrong. Not Jesus is right, and his word supports this. And that's what I've seen the change in the last five years. And by the way, where that's so deadly is you don't have to go find some obscure book written by a scholar you've never heard of, especially if you've grown up in the southern part of the United States in some library that you didn't know exist. I can take you through multiple pages that I save on Instagram so that I'm aware of what is out there where you can see somebody's tone, their niceness, their kindness, their convincing to walk you through why something's sinful. And it's not just homosexuality stuff I see. My brother works down, at, my brother-in-law's working down as an aide in the Capitol. They had a group come by the other day with Bible verses on why God condones abortion. Bible verses. This is the kind of stuff James or Jude is going to address. We have got to be a praying church because hearts that have fallen into that it's not just going to be logic that pulls them out. It's got to be a movement of the Holy Spirit to unblind their hearts. So please join with me in praying as we walk through Jude. Let me pray to close out our time. Love you and I'm grateful for you, church family. Thank you for being here tonight. And uh, we, will, we will see you in the days to come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithful example of our brothers and sisters who've gone before us. Of our brothers and sisters who are suffering intensely who were told, hey, all you got to do is come in here and say, Caesar is Lord. You don't have to really believe it. Most of your pagan neighbors don't believe it either. But they went, no, I can't do that. I can't offer that incense. Jesus is Lord. And so because of that, Domitian began to persecute them. Some were killed. Some were imprisoned. Losing livelihood, hardship, family separated. And to those believers, Lord, you moved the Apostle John to write, and to write and say, I looked up and I saw the new heaven and the new earth coming down. And in that time, God made His dwelling not in heaven among the angels, but on earth among men. And you say that Jesus came to each one and took His nail-scarred hand and wiped the tears away from their eyes. Jesus, You are our hope, no matter how good or bad this world is. And may we truly be believers who stake every aspect of our hope on you. So Jesus, thank you for your word. May your word constantly change and refine us, Holy Spirit, because we are submitted and surrendered to your work in and through our lives. It's to you we look. It's in your name I pray. Amen.